Good evening. This is the Ecology Hour on KZYX 88.1 Fort Bragg, 90.7 Philo, 91.5 Willits and Ukiah, Mendocino County's Public and Community Radio, and it is 7pm. Welcome to February. This is the time of year at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre where we see different researchers collecting data on our site as the seasons change and we move towards spring. Which got me to thinking, how do the studies taking place now shape our lives and this community in the future? How does the research of a scientific study fly from the pages of a journal to practical use on the lands, wildlife and people in our community. We start the conversation with PhD candidates from the UC Berkeley Brashares Lab. Phoebe Parker-Shames, who studies ecological impacts of cannabis cultivation, and Kendall Calhoun, who studies habitat recovery after wildfire. Two topics of huge importance to Mendocino County and our surrounding area. How will these studies inform our practices in the future? I began by asking Phoebe and Kendall to introduce their studies. So Kendall and Phoebe, welcome to the Ecology Hour. It's great to have you here. Um, Kendall, do you want to start us off? You guys are both studying topics which is of such great importance to our Mendocino and Northern California area. Um, perhaps you could start by just giving us a little bit of um, a breakdown of the studies that you are doing here at the Hopland Research and Extension Center. And Kendall, if you'd like to kick us off. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm Kendall. Um, I'm doing work looking at how different wildlife communities and populations are responding to a recent uh, megafire that entered Hopland back in 2018, um, the 2018 River Fire, which is part of the Mendocino Complex, which was at the time one of the biggest or the biggest fire in California history. Um, and I'm really interested in looking at how um, mammal, the large mammal community, birds and bat species are all responding independently, but also as a community to some of the changes caused by um, high severity, large, extent uh, megafires. Awesome. Okay, so um, Kendall, I know we're going to, I really want to ask you how, how you go about doing that in a minute, but maybe we can shift over to Phoebe next. And Phoebe, would you mind giving me a, a quick overview of the, the topic that you're studying, also incredibly relevant to our county and area? Yeah, so um, my research projects are looking at the ecological outcomes of cannabis legalization. So specifically at Hopland, we're setting up experiments to look at light and sound that mimics conditions from greenhouse and outdoor cannabis production and looking at what multi, multi species or so different species of wildlife um, and how they respond to those effects. Um, so everything from insects, birds um, to large mammals. So both of you are studying, I mean, for it just sounds incredibly complicated what both of you are doing. And one of the things that sounds difficult is you're both looking at multi-species. So there's this, there's this effect, something that's happened in either the wildfire or um, these lights and sounds 
And then you're trying to look at how that impacts many different kinds of species. So how on earth do you do that? Um, lots of different tools, <laughs> which actually makes the work that much more fun. <laughs> um, so actually Phoebe and I overlap a lot in like how we go about to answer these questions. So for mammal species, we use camera traps, which are like um, cameras that are remotely triggered by animals that walk past them. And we can look, look at different species through that. And then also using bioacoustics. So like bird recorders and ultrasonic recorders to look at birds and bats respectively. Um, and then I think Phoebe has even more <laughs> monitoring tools. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're also to, so to the to the camera traps and the acoustic monitors. We're also adding um, uh, some some insect traps. So sticky traps for insects. We we may also do um, a, a, a different um, technique for capturing. Uh, flying insects directly at the light source for those treatments. Um, and we're also piloting some track plates that should hopefully be fairly effective for small mammals. What is a track plate? A track plate is, is actually one of the old, old school wildlife monitoring methods where you essentially have a, a metal plate. Um, in our case, we'll have um, a sheet of paper with um, non-toxic uh, ink basically on one end. And so a small mammal, um, and, and they'll be in um, sort of a tube basically. So a small mammal come, walks through the tube, steps on the ink, steps on the paper, and then we see the tracks of the animal. Um, so this like, is- Sorry, it sounds like you're creating a kind of artwork there as well. <laughs> I, I'm hoping they're quite pretty. <laughs> we'll see. Um, it, it's, People, um, researchers have used have used this technique for a long time, um, and they used to use um, pieces of metal which they would use a, a flame to sort of, um, I guess, blacken one end, and then the animal would walk across it and sort of carry the soot, basically. Um, but that's not the not the technique we're using in this case. It's really interesting because you're talking about a technique there that's been used for a long period. But otherwise, it sounds like the tools that you are able to access to gather this information are changing really quickly. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Um, it, it's funny because I think in many ways, the concepts um, are really old. So when we talk about camera traps, you know, we're in the digital age now and the sensors get more and more advanced and everything. But the reason why it's called a camera trap is because the original designs was you know, a camera with a line basically attached to the trigger that an animal would walk over to um, trigger a, a camera. Yeah. Uh, so the concepts are, have been around for a long time, but the technology gets better and better. Yeah. Um, so you have these still many, many different species that you're monitoring. Um, I, I, I am always really intrigued. Kendall, you mentioned the acoustic monitoring you're doing. Phoebe, are you doing acoustic monitoring too? Yes, yeah, that's the plan. So you're collecting sound recordings um, that you'll then be maybe identifying particularly bird species from? Yes, yeah, for the acoustic uh, recordings will be birds. Mm -hmm. So it's always on my mind that you could potentially, and I guess it goes the same with the camera traps, you could end up with 
many, many, many pictures and the huge amounts of sound, how do you cut it down to an amount that you can actually realistically um, review? Ooh. <laughs> um, well, for, for the cameras, sometimes that's not always possible. <laughs> sometimes it requires a lot of legwork to go through all those images. And sometimes that means a lot of different people. <laughs> but there are um, potentially some new softwares that uh, we're investigating that could potentially kind of take some of that into like automated territory. <laughs> where like an algorithm will go through the images and pull out at least like all the animal pictures so that we don't have to go through all of the pictures that have nothing. Because <laughs> wow. sometimes you get misfires. And then that's also true for uh, the acoustic stuff. There's some new software and algorithms that can take the audio file or clip of like the bird or like the five, I do five minute recordings for my bird surveys. It can take that audio file download the sonogram, which is like the graph of the sound, and then identify um, species from that information using a algorithm. But um, yeah, it's on the up and up. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, sorry, go on, Phoebe. Oh, there's even um, some, it won't be in time for my dissertation probably, <laughs> but there's some people working on doing automatic classification with track plates as well. Um, and they think they can actually get it down to individuals because I guess on, on many mammals, the like the pad of the foot is, is sort of, I guess, maybe sort of like how we have different fingerprints that some mammals have different pad shapes or, or slight differences in size that you can actually get at individual information. Um, so when you say that, <laughs> you mean literally the individual animal, a bit like when we go and get a fingerprint check to see if we're on some kind of criminal database right yeah sort of like paul the mouse has visited oh this trap like six times um or something yeah um that's not going to be at that level <laughs> it's not going to be at that level for for my study i'm i'm probably not gonna well first of all i'm, I'm not sure if i'm necessarily interested in that in the question of the individual behavior um but also uh i i I don't know that the technology is going to be there yet for me. And you don't normally name your species, your animals, right? You know, I, I actually don't have a problem with naming them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, you know, I thank you for indulging me on sharing the tools a little bit. I find that just um, fascinating. What, one other tool that we're also hoping to take advantage of is uh, movement data from collared animals um, and looking at their responses to both the, the, the effects of fire recovery and can these uh, uh, light and sound treatments for the cannabis experiments. Mm -hmm. And in the past, we've done um, deer collaring for what, like three years, three plus years. And recently we've been able to collar coyotes, which has been really exciting in both the burned and unburned and especially around Phoebe's plots too. So be interesting to see how, yeah, all these species are responding um, in real time to some of these. Kendall, I, I can't help but wanting to just bring up that during the fire, there was some really fascinating um, <laughs> data that was collected. Would you mind sharing a little bit about what we saw because the collars were on the deer during the fire? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so 
one that's like it was an awesome opportunity to see like what actual deer are actually doing as the fire comes um we had 13 13 ish deer collared during the fire and uh we're afterwards we were able to see their movements right as the fire was coming and in the months following and we actually see that um some deer make very small movements to evade the you know incoming fire but some make some very dramatic <laughs> movements off the property um but actually we see that um in the hours and days following most deer come back to their home range and actually don't leave um despite all of their you know uh pre-burned habitat being all like burned down and all their forage being um reduced uh did you see then for that period afterwards, even though they stayed in their home range, was there a drop in their um, health? Yeah, so part of, so all of this is part of another project from an undergrad in our class, um, Sammy Creeling. And uh, we saw that deer in the burned area actually do decrease, their body condition actually does decrease in the first five months following the fire. Um, but we didn't see any signs of mortality, at least from the deer that were collared. Um, luckily. But uh, yeah, body condition goes down and they also are forced to use um, more area. So their home range doubles following the fire, probably to compensate for a lack of resources and their original home range size. Um, so they, yes, they, there are definitely effects, but they are seemingly adaptable to, to at least the immediate effects of fire. So you know, whenever I talk with either of you, I'm always just so fascinated in the studies that you're doing here. And it, it brings me to one of the things I wanted to talk to you both about this evening, um, which is, you know, you're, you're studying these issues that are incredibly important to our Northern California communities. Um, and, and sometimes I think in the worst cases, we can think of a scientific study being conducted papers being published in a journal, but then how do we see the practical benefits in a community? So maybe I can start, Phoebe, by pitching that to you, by asking, you know, you have a study which is of huge relevance um, in an area where um, farming cannabis is of, you know, huge value, um, and the ecological consequences are something which need to be considered very, very deeply. Um, how do you see the kind of work that you're doing is going to ripple out and actually make change in our communities? Yeah, I think that there are several different ways. Um, first, I will preface it with saying that this is a very small piece of the larger questions around cannabis and the environment and the different trade-offs we make, um, especially with different styles of production and places where, where we grow cannabis. Um, I think part of, the, part of the, the goal for these experiments in particular has come from conversations with people involved in policymaking um, and enforcement and also people who are trying to create sets of best management practices around cannabis. Um, so whether that's the, the farmers themselves or um, conservation is trying to work with farmers to um, 
promote best practices. Part of what is really difficult is that there's so little information around cannabis. Um, and so if you are sort of deciding, you know, things like, uh, shielding for greenhouses um, when grow lights are in use, or if you're trying to decide um, uh, setback distances or noise thresholds for equipment, things like that. Um, we don't have a lot of data, especially not data that's specific to the types of practices being used on cannabis farms specifically. And so I'm hoping that this work can help directly inform some of those guidelines. Um, so like, um, as an example, I've been working with um, uh, CDFW is trying to create some wildlife conscious certifications for cannabis. And part of the challenge is that um, we don't always have the research to inform those best practice guidelines. So this, this hopefully will, will fit into some of those gaps um, and help us understand. Um, but then beyond sort of the more formal policy avenues, I'm hoping that it can be useful to farmers directly, um, you know, when they're making decisions of, you know, do I invest in the, um, the greenhouse that has the automatic, you know, covering and uncovering mechanism. Do I, do I make the switch to electric tools on on site that are, generate a little less noise? Um, you know, getting a sense for which of these mechanisms might be impacting wildlife. Oh, or for instance, one of the big ones I would like to know too is with the lights. Do you end up attracting crop pests? Do you end up? Um, are there are there sort of trade offs that you have to consider? Um, that might directly impact plant health itself. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that uh, through outreach networks like with um, uh, HREC and its outreach connections and also with some of the various um, uh, cannabis groups uh, such as the Cannabis Research Center at Berkeley um, and hopefully some grower networks as well that we can also communicate these findings to people who are producing um, and then of course, also there's the communities around that I know, I know I get questions all the time from people who are neighboring farms and say, you know, I'm worried about the lights. I'm worried about the sound. Like, you know, is this bad for the animals in my area? And, you know, being able to give them a sense of if there are impacts and what they look like and, you know, guidance for, hey, you could go talk to your neighbor and recommend these steps. Um, so that, that's, that's something that I found interesting. And just as you've been describing that, I mean, it sounds to me as if you've had input from the very beginning on, on how your study would be formed from growers, from, it, it, it just, it strikes me that from the, through the whole process and even maybe ongoing as you're conducting this study, you're getting this constant feedback to understand what the community needs are and how you can best be meeting them. Does that sound about right? Absolutely. Yeah, so the, the original inspiration for this project um, is, comes from the fact that I grew up in a, in a community that has been profoundly transformed by cannabis agriculture, uh, especially since legalization. And so I really wanted to research a question that could inform 
debates that are happening in my own hometown. Um, so that, yeah, that was, I think that's been explicit in sort of my approach and the questions that I ask with this research. Kendall, that makes me um, want to return to you again, because I know it's interesting hearing Phoebe say that this is actually something that's, you know, um, deeply embedded in her as well, in her community and her experience. Um, am I right in saying that for you, studying wildfire is something which, which, which has a similar kind of resonance for you? Oh, uh, definitely, especially in more, more recent years. Um, I'm originally from California, so um, I pretty much lived through and witnessed like the escalation of the wildfires we're kind of witnessing right now. Um, and although, well, I guess my hometown came close to <laughs> a fire like disaster um, in the last year, but uh, yeah, I'm also hoping that some of my work can help inform um, the communities around California and help inform how we manage California and its wildlife um, as you know, climate change and wildfire regimes continue to change. So I, I'm, I'm interested, Kendall, of just the way that Phoebe's kind of been explaining how there's been this kind of feed in and how the study's conducted. And um, do you feel like you have a similar situation where the, there's an interest and, and, and I guess I'm really interested in how you feel the work that you're going to be doing as well and have been doing is going to then end up with practical applications? Mm -hmm. I think probably first and foremost probably is to inform um, management of different wildlife species and maybe that's more relevant to um, state agencies potentially especially if we're talking about like game species like deer <laughs> um, and if we're thinking about how wildfires may be becoming more frequent and prevalent on our landscape, um, deciding how we manage our species so that they can continue to be a resource for everyone <laughs> um, is a really important point, I think. Um, and whether or not they are, like understanding whether or not they're vulnerable to, you know, frequent mega fires, I think is an, an important point as well. Um, and also there is a lot of, at least from the interactions I've had, there's a lot of curiosity from um, people who own ranches in, you know, Mendocino County and Sonoma County, Napa County about um, what wildlife are doing after the fires on their property and how can they best, you know, one, um, protect their properties from fire, but then also make sure that their um, land is still conducive and usable by those wildlife species. Um, and I'm hoping that my research can, at least in some ways, inform um, how management, you know, before fire might be able to, you know, kind of soften the blow of some of these fires, but then also when, um, when post-management is needed, like when, you know, someone else, something else needs to be done to ensure that some of these systems uh, recover like they need to. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm often kind of challenged by what seems to be a, a quite a delicate balance between the fact that California is a fire adapted ecosystem and many of our species benefit from a certain level of fire and humans have been using fire as a tool here for thousands of years in order to uh, create, uh, you know, to, to steward an ecosystem that's, that's healthy and, um, and productive as well. Um, but that tips 
with the situation that we have now into fires that are not not always beneficial to wildlife. Would, would you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I think that's kind of conundrum is a little bit what drew me to some of this research, just because I think it's so interesting. It's almost like, well, maybe not exactly like having too much of a good thing, but like it's just very interesting that so many of these systems have had fire in their evolutionary history and um, the way that global change is happening in these ecosystems is challenging that very, you know, ecological and evolutionary interaction between species and that kind of disturbance. Um, yeah, if we think, I mean, it varies depending on which California ecosystem you're thinking about, but I can talk briefly about like oak woodlands in the past, historically, normally have like low severity fires um, that were used to like maintain oaks and remove oak litter from, from the ground. But um, if we're thinking about recent mega fires, um, some of these fires are big enough to kill whole oak trees, which are supposed to live for hundreds of years. Um, and we really, yeah, uh, we really don't know what the long-term effects of some of these events are going to be because, um, because of just the huge life history that some of these oak species have and some of the rippling effects that their loss may have on the rest of the ecosystem over long periods of time. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's one example. <laughs> yeah, whenever I speak to either of you, I always feel like, gosh, we could do you know, series of the Ecology Hour on each of your topics. They're so huge. And I appreciate that what I'm asking you to do tonight is very much a kind of very shortened version. Um, and maybe just to round things off, I'm going to continue in that vein because I think probably one of the things that happens frequently, it's, it's very clear that you are not locked away in some academic ivory tower, not communicating with the public, right? Very clear that you're having conversations with people who are challenged by having a wildfire on their own land or um, growing and growing cannabis and trying to figure out what can be having the least impact on the wildlife. Um, so I'm sure you often get questions which are seemingly simple questions, but probably have incredibly difficult answers. Like Phoebe, you've already mentioned one and I'm just gonna pitch it to you now. Is this bad? For the animals in my area, this this grow here is this bad for the animals in my area? What what what, what do you respond when come, people come to you with questions like that? Because <laughs> it is complicated, right? Um, and it's and there's also the whole system beyond animals themselves as well, um, because sometimes the, I. Not entirely sure how to describe the answer on this one because, on some level, yes, like any any type of development that you have, it's really hard to not have an impact. And the question for me really becomes, what is what is the type of impact, and how do you minimize it, um, rather than just the blanket like, does it have an impact? Because the answer is almost always yes. Yeah. Um, and and really, to me, it's more of um, how do we figure out a way to coexist. Mm. but I think one thing I've noticed is when people are asking me that question 
is that's usually also coming from a place of wanting to share a story or an experience that they have had with cannabis. Um, and so usually when people ask me that, I first, you know, ask them about what their experiences have been and what, um, what types of interactions have they observed or have shaped their thoughts about, about cannabis farming and what's happening on the landscapes around them. Um, because I also want to be really clear that a lot of my research focuses, focuses in on one particular type um, or a couple different types of farming, but does not necessarily encompass all of the environmental impacts of cannabis as an entire industry. Um, but I would say in general, I think some of the different, I think in terms of sort of um, mechanisms, different types of practices that people use in the cultivation of cannabis um, and the ways in which those might potentially impact wildlife. And it's different depending on the style of cultivation, the size of cultivation, the location of cultivation. And, and there are different sort of methods that you would use for each of those to try to mitigate or reduce impact. So for instance, in the, a lot of the places, a lot of the areas where I did observational work on cannabis farms um, was in Southern Oregon actually. And many of those farms um, were located in sort of a, a forest, forested ecosystem on land that hadn't really had much previous development on it. And so in those cases, you're looking at sort of small scale clearing and road building. Um, depending on the farmer, you might be looking at something like um, spraying of plants, pesticide use. Um, not everybody does that. Um, and certainly if you're part of the regulated system, there are a lot of restrictions on what sort of things you can spray on plants. Um, but what I noticed, especially from site visits, was that what I think might be one of the keys to understanding, at least in rural areas, so especially in parts like in northern Mendocino, um, where you've got um, more sort of production in areas with less other forms of development, I suspect that a, a major piece of the impact on wildlife is really more about just the presence of people in a place that there hasn't been a lot of human activity. Um, and so that's, that's part of the impact of the noise and the light is just in a place that has a, maybe it hasn't experienced much of that. I think that's actually um, likely to be a large part of the mechanism. So I, I, I don't think there's anything inherent in cannabis itself as a plant that means that it has to be bad for animals. Um, I wanna be <laughs> really clear on that, um, but there are a lot of different practices associated with where and how it's grown that can lead to some of those negative outcomes. Um, it's sort of a winding explanation. I guess maybe the other aspect I would add on that one is just that I, so often I get people who are asking about cannabis in a way of sort of, you know, they ask about the environmental impact and it's sort of tied with this concept of like, can't we just make it go away? Yeah. Oh. Um, like, can't we like, you know, this is bad and we should stop it. It's and a loaded it, question, right? It, yeah. it is a loaded question. And it's one of those ones where you're like, 
but do you want to stop it? Like, do you actually, if you're thinking about that, like, um, I mean, especially in Southern Oregon, and I don't know to the same extent in Mendocino, it's like, what do you do if you pull the rug out on the cannabis industry? Like, what do we have left? Timber? Like, that also has an impact. (laughs) The time is now 7.30 p.m. And you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. No, I, I, I think that um, I think what we've just been through is is just proved right that one of the it's it's really challenging because often the questions that we I am um, so I speak for community members come to you with asks you to simplify things down and in fact they're really hard questions because of that. Um, Kendall, if I was going to ask you the similar kind of question, I'd probably be asking something similar around fire and maybe what I just asked you about well hang on a minute isn't isn't wildfire good for our ecosystem and and you know it's 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 not a simple answer and that's why you're doing the work that you're doing and the studies that you're working on um so I guess I I just want to wind up and and say a huge thank you for the work that you're doing and also a, a great thank you for the fact that I know both of you are very dedicated to the, the utilization of um, what you what you discover um, and seeing how that's going to change um, California for the better. Um, so I want to say I appreciate all the work you do here. Um, is there anything else you'd want to add at the end of tonight's show? Sure. Um, I, I just want us to say thank you to Hopin Research and Extension Center. Um, it's been a really um, supportive and wonderful place to do research. And I think particularly on the the topic of of connecting research to communities, what I found from all the people working here and helping with the research is that they all really care about that piece. Um, And so even, you know, the casual conversations I have about my research with people who work here, um, it is really guided towards that concept of, of how does this relate to the community and how can we use this research? Yeah. Yeah. Do, I, I, yeah. Go I, ahead, Kendall. <laughs> I was just going to completely echo that and say that the, the staff are just like stars and just makes it a great place to do our research. And also Hoplin just has such a rich history in research and that's even outside of our lab. So um, there's a lot of, yeah knowledge and yeah to pull from <laughs> well I'm, I'm i'm thrilled that that this site is able to offer that um for for everybody and for the future as well um all right i'm gonna let you get back to your evenings now and again thank you so much for spending time on the ecology hour with me this evening well thank you so much to phoebe and kendall fascinating to hear how their work is shaped by community needs We're going to move next to a conversation with the Hopland Research and Extension Centre Director, John Bailey. I started by asking John about how studies conducted at the site since 1951 have shown their value to the community. Well, there's a huge history of research that's been happening over the years at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. You know, we started operations in 1951 and there was so much science being done in areas that we now know a lot about and take for granted. So early on, a lot of work in um, sheep grazing effects, 
nutrition, animal health. It used to be that sheep was a huge industry around here and Hopland did a lot of work that helped not only the regional area, but also the sheep industry nationwide. Uh, and then we've evolved over time, you know, as, as science has changed and the needs of people on the land have changed. Um, one thing that has been coming up more and more in the past that uh, Hopland did a lot of work on is Lyme's disease. Um, you know, it's really becoming apparent how endemic this disease is in our area and how many people it affects. A lot of the original work about Lyme's disease and how it was transmitted through its host populations and ticks and lizards and squirrels was done at Hopland. And a lot of work around how ticks behave, where you'll find them, where you pick them up on your clothing the most, how likely you are to get the disease, that work was done at Hopland. And then over the last few years uh, and continuing from a, a deep tradition of it, wildlife research has become really important as we have more and more people spread out across the landscape. We have the ever increasing wildlife urban interface zone. Uh, we have hundreds of thousands of miles of fence line out in the landscape. Uh, we're continually impacting the wildlife around us and we don't even know the ways how. So a lot of work has been happening in, at Hopland currently that builds on previous work, which really helps us understand things like the Colombian black-tailed deer, which are our main deer around here. And um, an example of a really recent project that's just ending at Hopland was looking at deer estimation methods and how uh, scientists and the state of California can model how many deer are in a given area. And that has huge impacts. I mean, it, sets, it helps set hunting quotas, how many tags they allocate for a certain area if you're a deer hunter. It also helps set the allocation of resource funds for habitat restoration or improvement. Um, so it has direct impacts on local residents here. Thank you for that, that overview. It's, it, you've picked up on so many fascinating studies in just a few minutes there. Um, there's a few I, I wanted to come back to, if it's okay with you, um, sure. unless, John, did I cut you short there? Did, was there more that you wanted to share? Oh, you know, there's, there's some other ones, but I'm definitely ask your question and I can always fill in. Excellent. Um, I guess one of the things I'm interested in is, so you, you've talked about this incredible history since 1951 of the site being owned by the UC and these different questions which have been asked. And now you're in a position where you are working with new researchers coming and considering the site and deciding if this is an appropriate um, living laboratory for them to work in. Um, how much does it come to play for you um, and for those researchers to consider the community needs as new research projects are proposed? I think it really depends on the researcher and what their focus is. You know, some people have what they study and they're going to study it across the whole world. And it doesn't matter too much to them about what the uh, impact or the needs are of the local population. Um, because they might be, for example, one of our projects looks at the nutrient balance in rangelands all around the world. And they have sites across all the continents uh, really looking at how does uh, given nutrients like nitrogen function in different systems. So that may have impacts on us locally, but it's really a global project that's helping in our general understanding of ecological processes. 
other researchers are more focused on a specific topic area. So like we have a, a researcher working now at Hoplin. Uh, I think you're going to have her on the show or already have talking about um, she's studying the effects of uh, cannabis cultivation in our rural areas on the wildlife because there's sound disturbances, there's light at odd hours of the night, and all of those things affect how animals move. And if we're going to really have as benign a cannabis industry as we hopefully can, we need to understand ways that we can work in our landscapes without harming the animals on them. So it really depends on what the, the focus of the researcher is. And so um, luckily we have managed to just speak with Phoebe and understand a bit more about her studies here. Um, I'm interested in just that kind of connection from a, a scientific journal or a paper having been produced and published and that leaping off the page to actually some practical um, uh, application. Um, and I'm wondering, have you seen examples of where studies have done that, where perhaps they've added in afterwards, maybe it's some kind of a training, or there's been some element where that finding that new science has then been shared out to um, better inform the community with something that they might value. Yeah, I think it depends, again, on what the, the topic is and who the researcher is working with. Um, so on the example of the, the deer population estimates, well, that was uh, funded by and in collaboration with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. So there was a direct link there between the research that was happening and how public policy was going to be informed. And so that's a really tight connection. It's not necessarily a local connection, but it's a really tight connection between studying something and action taken because of that knowledge gained. An, an example on the other side is, you know, some other projects we've been doing at Hopland are around non-lethal predator control methods. And so traditionally in, in ranching, the, the uh, predators are seen as the enemy to be gotten rid of. And uh, there are new tools out there and tweaks of old tools that we can use to maybe still have those predators coexist with livestock operations in rural areas. And so we've done trainings at Hopland on those methods as we're studying them so that it's this direct feedback mechanism where you're learning and then feeding out at the same time and helping evolve each other's practices. Um, so, th I mean, those are, those are great kinds of studies that are really relevant to the area. Excellent. Um, I'm also interested in how some of these studies actually inform the practices that you use on the land. So one of the things that you mentioned was fencing. Um, has the, so and maybe you can explain a little bit more about what they were studying regarding the fencing and has that then informed some of the practices at Hopland Rec? So the, the study was really looking at what are the effects of fences on the movement of wildlife and the connectivity of their habitat areas on the landscape. So at Hopland we have had fences installed for different projects over the years that range from everything from eight and nine foot tall fencing, field fencing that you can't really get through small squares um, to um, barbed wire to you know three foot tall field fencing. And so what the researchers were doing is tracking animals with GPS collars and with camera traps uh, to really see how their movement was changed by these fences. And um, 
then we had the wildfire, the river fire come through in uh, the summer of 2018 in Hoplin. And now we've been faced with rebuilding all of that fence as much as possible. Uh, and yeah, so that's informing the practice. I mean, we're really not replacing those larger fences. They're, they're not needed. We're scaling down the size of the fence that we're using. And we are um, doing as good a blend as we can of protecting our sheep from predators, keeping them from roaming, and making sure that the wildlife has uh, access routes in different areas. Excellent. Um, I, that reminds me that one of the things I've noticed recently is that um, Hopland Rec have also added in a, a new project. Am I right in thinking about hedgerows? Yeah, um, there's a couple of projects that are, I think are really relevant locally going on right now. Um, so there's a, a hedgerow project where we got funding from the, uh, the California Department of uh, Food and Agriculture mm -hmm. from their Healthy Soils program uh, to install a 400 foot long hedgerow composed of drought tolerant native plants. And um, it's really a demonstration of putting in this type of hedgerow on local rangelands that's appropriate for our, our rangeland ecosystems here. So hedgerows have really been shown to benefit pollinators, insects, uh, birds, providing them other habitat and shelter, uh, and then also to have beneficial effects on the soil because you're getting the, uh, the roots are much deeper and more diverse and they will actually add and sequester carbon in the soil. So um, we're demonstrating that and also doing the sampling of the soil and the um, bird and insect populations to really show what the benefits are. And then we're tracking all the costs to put it in in our local landscape so that there'll be a, an on the ground demonstration of this technique. Um, and then we've got another one that's going in in partnership with um, the Resource Conservation District here in Mendocino County and um, funded by CAL FIRE. And we're installing these biogasifiers that basically take wood chips, they burn it for electricity. And so it's a, it's a much more sustainable feedstock than fossil fuels. Uh, and then a portion of the feedstock that goes in of the wood chips gets turned into biochar which then is stable in soils. So then by taking that biochar and incorporating it into the soils, you can sequester that carbon. Um, and it's looking like for hundreds or maybe even thousands of years, depending on the exact character of the uh, biochar that you're putting in and how you put it in. But um, I mean, that could be a much more sustainable way to have microgrids in our area to use wood chips from forestry operations or fire fuels reductions to both generate power, they also generate hot water, and then they sequester carbon through the biochar. So um, it's, you know, that that's also another interesting demonstration project that is working with our local resources and materials and figuring out new ways to do things. So it sounds like you have a, a few of these demonstration projects where that kind of reason for being is that they have plans locally or in the in California um, after the study's been completed. Is that right? Right, yeah. I mean, with the biogasifier one, I was just working on a, a management plan for it today and really um, we're looking at generating verified carbon offsets to um, 
prove that we're sequestering this carbon out of the ecosystems, withdrawing it from the, the atmosphere in general, uh, sequestering it in the ground um, to help with the effects of climate change, but also present an economic opportunity here locally. Uh, and then it's going to tie into other research that's, you know, a little bit further out there of uh, taking the biochar and then co-composting it. So rather than adding it to your fields, which has shown to have some issues with productivity, putting it in a compost pile, composting it together, there's research showing that it lessens the amount of uh, ammonia and carbon dioxide that comes off a compost pile. So it's preventing some greenhouse gas emissions there. And then um, that co-compost is showing good potential for then being a real benefit to agronomic fields. So yeah, we're just trying to layer in all the different things of demonstrating things, learning about them, and then tying into next steps in research. Excellent. And I, John, at the end of the show today, I'll make sure I share out um, a link that folks can sign up to be kept up to date with any of the outreach events that will go alongside these projects so they can find out more how they do, um, uh, what they can learn from them. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm also interested, you know, in your position as the director at Hopland Rec, um, it must be quite exciting. We just spoke with Phoebe and Kendall and one thing that came across from both of them is that this is not, their studies are not something which they are removed from. It's something that's very close to um, who they are as a person. So for Phoebe, you know, growing up in um, Oregon and areas where there was a lot of cannabis cultivation and seeing um, the impacts and wondering how she could um, benefit the science associated with that. Um, and for Kendall with wildfire, um, again, a California resident. And, and for yourself, you're somebody who's grown up in this area. Um, I'm interested, you must feel in a, a great position to be able to help shape some of the research and really help put that back into the community you care about. Yeah, no, I definitely like the work that I get to do. I mean, and, and being able to um, bring people out to learn more about their natural environment and agriculture is definitely a, a passion of mine. I really appreciate working with you, Hannah, on that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's amazing with our entertainment industry and all of the video games and um, tablets, how removed people can get from how dependent we are on the ecosystems around us and on the agricultural producers around us. And so, you know, the science is definitely really important because we need to continue to learn about our world and our influence on it and how we can make that as benign as possible or, or as beneficial as possible. Um, but if we don't have people out there learning about and caring about the natural world, we lose that connection and then we lose the, the sense of care and the stewardship. So um, I think that it's really important to uh, make ourselves accessible and make these learning opportunities accessible to all kinds of people so that we can really continue to, to get out there and, and learn about and love our natural world. What do you think the future studies at Hopland Rec will look like? I think a lot of them are gonna revolve around um, the effects of uh, cannabis on the landscape. I mean, we, we can't we won't touch cannabis ourselves, but there's lots of ways to study it without being directly involved. Um, I think wildfire and ways to use different tools like prescribed burning, 
uh, prescribed burn associations, vegetation management plans to um, protect our habited areas from wildfire. Uh, and I think around climate change, I think that um, there's going to be, there already is, and there's going to be ever more interest in and resources to study and figure out ways to uh, lessen the impacts of climate change because they're happening so fast and we're on like the worst course trajectory that has been projected. So um, there's a lot of work that we really need to do there urgently. You know, I think another portion of what the work that we're going to need to be doing is uh, really honing in on how and where to use targeted grazing to reduce wildfire damage and not just for human structures, but also for our oak woodlands. Um, you know, our local forestry advisor is doing a, Mike Jones is doing a project at Hopland looking at, you know, the wildfire came through. We have extensive grazing records showing how and when and, you know, how often sheep were grazing in certain areas. And he can correlate that to then the effects on the trees, the mortality rates of the oaks. And I think that kind of work is going to be ever more important. You know, what's the right mix of species? Is it goats, sheep? cattle, they all have different eating behaviors. Uh, and when do you bring in which species for what type of effect is going to be something that uh, we're going to need to learn more and more about. Excellent. Well, we look forward to hearing back from you and from the Hopland Research and Extension Center so that those um, studies can be put to good use in the community. And thanks for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for doing this show. It's really good to get the word out there. And, you know, as always, we COVID times have modified it, but we, uh, we really want to continue to build our education programs. And um, if people have feedback for us about things they want to learn about that are important in their lives, I think that's a really important part of feedback that we listen to. Awesome. So, thank you. you share out our email address and um, ways that folks can feedback at the end of the show. Thanks again, John. Great. Thanks, Tana. Hi. Okay. Well, thank you so much to John for his explanation and expression of how the value of some of the research studies that have taken place at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. Just a couple of elements that um, John mentioned during his interview uh, that I wanted to make sure we refer back to. John mentioned that there would be some upcoming events considering some of the research projects that had taken place, uh, including the hedgerow, the new hedgerow study that is being done, um, and the biogasifiers. Um, to find out about those studies, it's best to sign up for the Hopland Research and Extension Centre online newsletter. And you can do that by going to bit.ly forward slash HREC News, that's H-R-E-C-N-E-W-S. If you want to find out more about the different research projects being conducted there, there is also a monthly webinar offered by the Hopland Research and Extension Centre called Spotlight on Research. And this allows you to get a deeper look at some of the individual projects that are available. If you'd like to take a look at the films that are currently available, including one by Kendall Calhoun, considering the effects of wildfire on the wildlife at the site, you can find those films at bit.ly forward slash hrecfilms. That's H-R-E-C-F-I-L-M-S. 
If all this talk of the site has piqued your interest, you'll be happy to know that we are now offering self-guided hikes on the 5,358-acre site at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. The hike which is being offered is a 4.3-mile route with approximately 550 feet of elevation gain, and the hikes are offered on Saturday mornings. Folks have to arrive between 9 and 10 a.m., and they must first check a self-screening online um, survey, which helps them check that they're feeling really healthy before visiting the site. Once they get to the site, there is a short liability waiver to sign, and then a map will be given and more details about the hike. For those of you who might be interested in hiking at the site, take a look at bit.ly forward slash h-r-e-c-e-v-e-n-t-s. That's bit.ly forward slash events, all lowercase. There are no dogs on these hikes since we do use guardian dogs on the property to protect the sheep. Please remember that if you have any comments about the programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at our Facebook page at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Hopland Rec. Or you could always send me an email, hbird, H-B-I-R-D, at U-C-A-N-R dot E-D-U. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you'd like to be hearing on the Ecology Hour into the future. I've got some questions I want to know you But what if I could ask you only one thing Only this one time What would you tell me? Well maybe you could give me a suggestion So I could know you What would you tell me? Maybe you could tell me what to ask This world for all intents and purposes, and what are your intentions? Will you try?
They're just gonna wait here if you let them. Please don't let them. I want to know you. And if they're gonna haunt me, please collect them. Please just collect.